Welcome to the journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Gronyany A, and this week, how did a truckers' protest in Canada spread to other countries? The self-described Freedom Convoy started off with a small group of truckers blocking the centre of Ottawa in protest over COVID vaccine mandates imposed on their industry. After setting up camp in sub-zero temperatures, the protesters began to gather thousands of new supporters. They set about blocking key access points to the city, honking horns late into the night, and even installing a hot tub in the middle of downtown Ottawa. The protest then expanded further, blocking three key roads that link Canada and the US, and sparking protests around the world. Despite counter-demonstrations, some arrests, and Canadian President Justin Trudeau invoking rarely used emergency powers, the authorities are still struggling to get a hold of the situation. So how did all of this unfold? Today we'll look at the government's response to the blockades, what external forces helped spark protests in other parts of the world, and how the truckers involved might only represent a small section of their industry and wider Canadian society. Joining me on the podcast today is Alan Regan, a talk radio producer based in Vancouver, and Kieran O'Connor, an analyst from the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, a think tank that tracks online extremism. We'll start with you, Alan. Tell us, how did these protests first start? And a bit of a basic question, but why trucks? Well, the reason trucks are being used goes back to a decision by Justin Trudeau's government that took effect on January 15th. And now bear in mind, as you said, uh, Gronia. You know, Canada shares a land border with the United States and more than 70% of Canada's exports actually go to the United States. And obviously with that land border, much of that product is transported by truck. So it was a pretty big deal when the Trudeau government announced that all Canadian truckers coming back into Canada from the US would need to be vaccinated against COVID-19 in order to avoid a 14-day quarantine. And that move attracted some criticism because we know, obviously, there are global supply chain issues right now. And in Western Canada, there is still disruption on the roads uh, because in November, there was a major flooding and uh, mudslide event that at one point had actually cut off road access from Vancouver, which you know was a major port city on the West Coast. Vancouver was cut off by road from the rest of Canada. Canada. And so an industry group called the Canadian Trucking Alliance said, look, now is not the time to bring in these rules, because if you introduce this vaccine mandate, you're going to take as many as 12,000 truckers off the road at a time of supply chain issues and labor shortages. You know, what office hasn't been affected or what industry hasn't been affected by labor shortage in the past couple of months? So, you know, they all, they criticized all of that. And they were also criticizing the effectiveness of this particular measure because they painted this picture of a driver sitting alone in their truck, traveling for days on end by themselves. And they argued, well, does it matter if they have COVID or not? How do they spread COVID-19 if they're just sitting in the truck all by themselves? But in response to that, you know, some health experts did argue that, well, long distance travel is how new variants, you know, move from one place to another. And, you know, this kind of measure that the uh, Trudeau government was bringing in is helpful. A number of people in the trucking industry disagreed with that point, though. And, you know, they decided, well, it was time to make their feelings known. And I guess there's no question that, you know, if you want to protest something, trucks certainly are a very loud and effective way to make that point because of course you could have um, a gathering of people you know walking around with signs 
it's far more dramatic uh, to put those same people into trucks and have them traveling across Canada, landing right outside Parliament buildings and honking their horns all day long. You mentioned the placards that people might have seen being held at the protests with various claims and demands on them. But what was the protesters' main ask? That's where it all starts to get quite muddied. And, you know, there is no one organiser or spokesperson or group associated with the convoy. It's it's loads of different groups and organisations. And, you know, the convoy itself has become a magnet for people with various points of views um, against COVID restrictions, against vaccines. And, you know, at, at the outset, that vaccine mandate for truckers was a focal point for sure. And, you know, many people still feel very strongly about that in the convoy. Um, but there was one group affiliated with the protests who produced a, a memorandum of understanding document. And that document went further. It called on all public health measures associated with COVID-19 to end. They wanted the federal government to resign because they said their freedom was being denied by these public health restrictions. Others, including the federal leader of the New Democratic Party, has been critical of comments you know, from some associated with the protest saying that their aim was to overthrow the Canadian government. And, you know, an investigative reporter has uncovered evidence that one of the protests um, at the border between Canada and the US, where the participants envisioned a scenario where the rule of law in Canada would be replaced with the word of God. So it's been kind of this mishmash of different kind of um, aims, uh, depending on which part of the protest you're speaking to. Who are the people attending these protests? It's it's a mix. And, you know, we get callers to our radio station making the point that, you know, there are supporters of this convoy who simply think that restrictions should be reduced, that the public health measures that are in place right now are too draconian. And, you know, I think a lot of that many would argue, falls within typical political debate and typical political discourse. However, there are some key figures associated with the convoy who are stepping in front of cameras and organising fundraisers associated with the convoy. And they have been identified in news reporting as holding more extreme and more discriminatory views. One of the people who organised a major fundraiser for the convoy has publicly expressed views that are anti-immigrant, that are anti-Muslim, Another of the dominant voices from the convoy has made racist comments against Chinese people. And, you know, he's been sharing conspiracy theories online. Uh, One of the conspiracy theories that's been shared, you know, relates to COVID vaccines being used as a government tracking device. And another of the main organizers has been linked to the uh, Soldiers of Odin, that far right anti-immigrant group. We spoke with one protester, though, who, you know, is pretty frustrated at the sight of all of that because he was feeling that, you know, the whole point about getting an end to vaccine mandates for truckers has just gotten lost and muddied in amongst all this far right rhetoric that's being expressed among the convoy. But certainly, you know, when you, you see some of the signs and um, when you see some of the, the, the rhetoric that has been put out there, it is clear that many of the leading voices associated with the convoy are expressing views that range from racism to concepts about COVID-19 that just don't align in any way with conventional scientific thinking. So how representative are they of truckers in Canada? Well, you know, it's important to say, you know, the vast majority of truckers in Canada are vaccinated against COVID-19. And, you know, that is reflective of Canadian society generally. Canada's vaccine rate is almost as high as Ireland's. And, you know, we've spoken to various truckers and various organizations who represent truckers, and they say that this convoy and certainly what this convoy has morphed into, that it doesn't represent them. And, you know, we spoke with a a spokesperson for the United Truckers Association in British Columbia, 
And he told us that, you know, the key concerns for his members are things like pay and things like road safety. And, you know, we're in the middle of winter in Canada where, you know, Canada does have very harsh winters. And, you know, there have been problems recently where the roads aren't getting de-iced quickly enough and they're concerned about their road safety. So those are the key issues that, that he's saying his members are bringing to him. And, you know, the point has also been made that more than 20% of truckers in Canada are South Asian. And in the province of British Columbia, that figure rises to almost 50%. So community leaders have been telling us that, you know, they don't see that diversity reflected in the faces that they see at this trucker convoy, and they don't see any of the concerns that they're bringing up getting any of this attention. Okay, so the Canadian public, do they support these protests? And how do they feel about vaccine mandates in general? Well, the protest has been going on for so long now uh, that we actually have, we've had the opportunity to get some uh, national polling done on this. And a national polling firm called the Angus Reid Institute actually asked Canadians about this very point. And about three quarters of respondents said, OK, Convoy, you have made your point. You have been there for a number of weeks. Now it's time to go home. Um, Ottawa is, you know, a city of about one million people. And it's been very disruptive there. One of the major shopping centres had to close down during these protests um, because people were coming in being, you know, aggressive with staff, you know, not complying with mask mandates. And we spoke to some of the business owners in Ottawa who say, you know, they've struggled through COVID-19 and all of these restrictions. And they were finally looking towards the light at the end of this Omicron tunnel that we're all going through. But now they're dealing with shoppers staying away from the city centre in Ottawa because of the protests. And, you know, instead those choppers have been replaced with protesters coming in, not wearing masks, getting into arguments with staff. And the policing and the security efforts, it's costing taxpayers millions of dollars a day. And, you know, according to that Angus Reid poll, there is broad support now among the Canadian public for either the police or the military stepping in and simply clearing out this protest from the streets of Ottawa. And when it comes to you know vaccine mandates and when it comes to vaccines generally, there is you know support for COVID measures. Um, there was polling in January done by um, a polling company called um, Research Co, and that suggests that about eighty four percent of Canadians support the use of masks, for instance, in indoor settings, and about two thirds still approve of vaccine certs at this point. So, how did we go from there to seeing the protests spread and grow across Canada? Yeah, well, well, I mean, the convoy itself, it began as this, you know, cross-country road trip with truckers, you know, setting off from British Columbia on the West Coast and more trucks joining along the route before they set down in Ottawa. Um, but protesters did take their point to some key border crossings with the United States. And, you know, at one point that included the busiest border crossing of all between the two countries at a location called Ambassador Bridge. And that blockade ran for six days. And, you know, that's significant because it's a key route for the supply of Canadian goods, for example, for example, to car manufacturers in Detroit in the US, which, you know, many people will know is a real hub for that industry. And because of that blockage, you know, the likes of Toyota, the likes of Ford, the likes of General Motors, they all had to cut production while their supplies were tied up on the other side of the border. That's just one example. And we saw, you know, impacts of this across the country. And that prompted the public safety minister in the province of British Columbia, where I'm speaking to you from, he described it on our program last week as economic hostage taking. Um, it has inspired, you know, and you mentioned this previously, Grony, you know, it inspired plenty of localized protests uh, too, because, you know, here in Vancouver, a local convoy travelled into the city centre um, one or two weekends ago. And, you know, Vancouver is one of the most highly vaccinated parts of the country. So that meant that counter-protesters 
came along and disrupted their route. And, you know, that tussle between the two groups did cause lots of traffic disruption and there were arrests. Um, and the focal point of that protest, you know, was the headquarters of one of the main television networks because many protesters, um, and this is another point that they uh, would refer to, um, have been very critical of the COVID-19 coverage by the news media. So this did cause a wide level of disruption? It caused, you know, quite a lot of economic uh, disruption. Um, and certainly, you know, it wasn't just economic disruption because, you know, residents in Ottawa have been complaining for a number of weeks that they don't feel safe. And, you know, whether that's leaving their homes, they, they might feel, you know, some of that aggression on the streets, but certainly inside their homes, you can imagine how disruptive it would be to have truck horns blaring outside your apartment or your house all day long. And, you know, as we speak, you know, the blockades of the crossings with the US border, they have been cleared. But there was an investigation by uh, the Global News Network, which revealed that there was the people who attended one border crossing who did intend to cause further disruption because a private investigator managed to infiltrate that group and you know, reported that very few of the protesters were actually truckers themselves. In fact, you know, the group actually included Americans and intelligence was gathered at that blockade at Coots in the province of Alberta, which you know suggested that there was discussion in terms of disruption to broaden the scope beyond that border crossing and to actually target airports across the country, uh, specifically cargo terminals, shipping terminals. And the ultimate goal seemed to be to force a change of the national government achieved through a severe restriction in the national economy, which they thought would destabilize the government. That particular escalation did not materialize, but that's what the threat assessment and the and the private investigation of that group at one border crossing found. Okay, so that that had the potential to go quite big, which brings me to the question: How did the Canadian government and the police respond to all of this? Well, there's been a lot of criticism of how officials have responded to this, and you know, one thing to keep in mind here is that the way government is structured in Canada is very different from Ireland because you've got three levels of government. You've got the city level, like Vancouver, like Toronto, like Ottawa. You've got the provincial level, so Ontario or British Columbia. And then you've got the federal level, and that's Justin Trudeau and the Trudeau government. And you've also got, when it comes to policing, you've got a national police force, which is the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. But some cities, like Ottawa, have their own local police forces as well. So there has been this jurisdictional tug of war going on. And early on, Ottawa's mayor said the city did not have the resources to deal with something on this scale. So he asked for thousands of additional police officers to be brought in to deal with the situation. And Justin Trudeau was asked about this and he told reporters he did not believe the city had exhausted all of the tools that it had and that there was no necessary, uh, there was no, it wasn't necessary to add extra resources at that time. Days later, however, he invoked the Emergencies Act. And that, that's the first time that has happened since that became law in the 1980s. And one of the tests for invoking that national emergency law is that the capacity of city and provincial governments has been overridden. Justin Trudeau told reporters that invoking that law is not the first thing or even the second thing that the federal government should consider. But it has happened now because I guess they have gotten to the point where they believe it is necessary. And all of that has led to criticism that Justin Trudeau has been missing is the word that's been used during this protest. That's how one opposition leader described it. So, Alan, how much disruption is there left still on the ground and what's going to happen next? 
Well, as we speak, the disruption is centered around the parliament buildings in Ottawa and, you know, police have issued notices to protesters who are still there, but the horns are still blaring and, you know, we're hearing from residents who are really uh, frustrated about that. Um, You know, because the Trudeau government has invoked the Emergencies Act, the government has been outlining some of the ways that it intends to use that. And one of that, one of which is to target the financing of this protest, which, you know, the Deputy Prime Minister has been speaking about this. And she says that, you know, crowdfunding websites are now required to report any transactions which are large and suspicious. And banks now have the ability to immediately freeze or suspend bank accounts uh, without a court order if they believe it's helping to fund uh, the blockades. And the goal there is to disrupt the protesters' financial abilities so they don't have the funds to remain in Ottawa. And we are beginning to see that where police and banks are sharing information with each other. Protesters are going to ATMs and can't get their money out. And in terms of next steps, you know, police have handed out letters to protesters at the convoy, telling them explicitly that, you know, they will face severe penalties, that their trucks will be seized, that their driver's licenses will be cancelled. If, uh, you know, we are seeing examples where protesters have brought their children along to the protest as well. And anyone who has done that, they've been warned that they could face up to five years in prison. And um, the city of Ottawa has come out as well because lots of people have brought their pets along as well. And city officials in Ottawa have warned protesters, you could lose your pets if you're not able to look after them during enforcement action by police. So the, the police have been handing out warnings to the protesters saying enforcement action is coming you need to leave now. And what many people are watching for next is, will the protesters leave of their own accord or will they have to be forcibly removed? The Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, has spoken about this and he says that everything is on the table. Right now, it's something that Canadians are watching very closely. Kieran, if I can turn to you now, you're an analyst who monitors online extremism. So did these protests grow from Facebook and WhatsApp groups? Yeah, what the analysis shows is that what started as a domestic protest in Canada quickly spread uh, international via support and promotion from US groups and communities online primarily, but then uh, across Europe and across, across the world. What seems to have been really crucial in this is Telegram. And you have to remember that these COVID protests movements and groups were really looking at the culmination of close to two years of uh, support and and networking and kind of cross-pollination of uh, narratives and and protests. So what we're looking at here is the future of of COVID protest mobilization and what started in Canada quickly became something that was adopted and adapted by international groups in the US and and in Europe as well. And that extends from uh, just pure and simple support to also promotion of the crowdfunding campaigns that were used by the Canadian protest uh, groups, uh, first of all on GoFundMe before that was paused and eventually taken down, but then also on Give, Send, Go, an alternative uh, crowdfunding platform. And we're all quite used to the idea of, you know, crowdfunding. Uh, I, I might crowdfund something in, I might contribute to a crowdfunding campaign for something in the US, for example. We're all quite used to that element of it. But what's really unique about this uh, is the scale. It's really unprecedented. The GoFundMe campaign had somewhere north of 121,000 uh, individual donors. And the, the follow-up crowdfunding campaign on Give, Send, Go had somewhere close to 92,000 um, in individual donors and that's true promotion and, and sharing and, and, and these kinds of things on social media platforms uh, on, on, on Facebook and on Telegram as well yeah 
talking about the scale of these protests, where have they spread to? Uh, global. The, the convoy has received so much support, uh, primarily from right-wing politicians, groups and content creators, kind of influencers in the US, which likely played a, a crucial role in taking this from something being domestic in North America to something uh, that was global. Uh, most notably, President Trump mentioned the convoy in an email to supporters and he endorsed it. He referred to Prime Minister Trudeau as a far-left lunatic. But crucially, the convoy also enjoyed widespread uh, supportive coverage from uh, kind of partisan right-wing content creators in the US, people like Ben Shapiro and Glenn Beck, who have enormous reach on, on social media. But just to give you a sense of how widely discussed this was worldwide, uh, on Facebook between January 22nd and February 5th, based on some analysis I uh, carried out using CrowdTangle, there were 97,000 posts, that's photos, links, statuses and videos, from pages and public groups that generated 24 million uh, interactions around the world and even when you look at where the the URL the link for the GoFundMe campaign was shared there was widespread promotion of this within the US unsurprisingly but then also internationally Sweden Australia Slovenia Hungary Slovakia Greece uh, really worldwide and then you can also see how the beyond the simple crowdfunding element of it the actual protest itself in the form of protest spread to Europe as well and uh, only only in the last week um, you via Telegram mainly European groups and European group chats uh, started to form uh, in in very informal ways. Now it must be said, but the the protests really moved beyond uh, Canada's borders quite quickly. Did the protests in other countries have actual convoys? Not in the Canadian sense, no. They weren't able to mirror or completely replicate the events in Canada. Um, in, in Europe, the largest of the convoys are, were more to do with cars and vans and camper vans and these kinds of things and, and what we might term lorries, not the kind of large uh, American or North American kind of big rigs, but not on the same scale. And I think it was 500 vehicles were involved in protests in France uh, last week weekend uh, and they had planned to uh, take the convoy to Brussels but the authorities in Brussels acted quite quickly um, late last week and just over the weekend they prohibited uh, any large-scale vehicles like this coming into the center of Brussels to protest and it seems as though uh, that was quite effective in the end any vehicles that were destined to go to the protest uh, trying to trying to arrive in Brussels on Monday last uh, were directed to a large uh, like an industrial park or a car park outside the city and that seems to have been quite effective in mitigating against the large-scale process but it wasn't on the same scale as, as the Canadian uh, equivalent and now it'll be interesting to see there are plans and discussions for trying to mimic and trying to create something in the US so that might have more uh, similarities with Canada but that remains to be seen at this moment. Are they causing disruption at all in those countries? Not on the same scale as Canada. No other city has been brought to a standstill, much like Ottawa has. Uh, there was large-scale protests in New Zealand. Uh, in France last weekend, yes, uh, maybe 500 vehicles um, were, were in and around Paris, and but then were moved on by, by police. And there was attempts and there was plans to convoy from, create a convoy from multiple countries in the EU towards Brussels for last Monday, but it didn't materialize like that as well. So there really has been nothing on the same scale uh, as what happened and what is happening in Ottawa. So are we seeing these groups organize in a similar way to other anti-COVID, anti-lockdown, anti-vaccine groups? 
Yes, we really are. And this is sort of the latest wave or the latest iteration of COVID protests. If you think back, we've had kind of various peaks, uh, be it around opposition to masks, opposition to lockdowns, or even last year, which really was the the year of anti-vaccine mobilization. And at its heart, the COVID protest movement uh, has argued that all restrictions um, have been an anti-democratic power grab against people's freedoms and civil liberties. And it's quickly morphed into a, a loose uh, international coalition bringing together various causes, but at, at their heart are all anti-establishment uh, and, and anti-government. And what we're seeing really at the moment is the latest issue uh, around mandates or maybe lingering restrictions that have become something of a, a rallying cry for these COVID protest groups as well. And uh, what started initially as an anti-mandate protest in Canada, despite the fact that 90% of truckers there are already vaccinated, has morphed into something that has grown to reflect the broader frustration and anger of many people around uh, what restrictions remain in, in their respect countries. The protesters seem to have really bedded down in Ottawa and flared up in other parts of the world. Did they gain any support here in Ireland? Uh, no, it didn't. Um, funnily enough, there was a convoy uh, in early to mid-January from Dublin to Newry, uh, which the Gardaí, I think, got involved with, but that wasn't uh, for the same reasons, and I don't think it was linked or motivated uh, by Canada. Uh, on February 5th, there was uh, a convoy that came down from Belfast to Dublin, and I believe it went back up the M1 a few hours later, but it seemed that this was quite small scale, something around maybe 50 uh, or less vehicles, uh, mostly cars as well, nothing uh, anywhere close to the same scale as what was seen in North America or was even seen uh, on the continent. Could this become a running theme of pandemic-related protests, that they start off after one thing and they get co-opted by other movements? Yes, and... um, since the outset of COVID, groups opposed to masks and lockdowns and vaccines and other restrictions have all found common cause in their grievances that have been presented as pro-freedom, anti-tyranny, uh, in support of civil liberties, which they believe are being eroded. And this is the latest iteration of this. And the idea of uh, creating and, and developing protests that attempt to bring cities to a standstill could definitely become something that these the, that other protest groups try to emulate. But you only have to think back to the US in, in, in that period between November 3rd and January 6th, that even then the idea of creating a caravan that was traveling towards the capital uh, was being used and deployed in that. But the risk and the danger of these kinds of protest movements that we've seen since the beginning of COVID is that often these movements uh, have been and can be uh, co-opted and capitalized upon by extremist figures or extremist groups who seek to take advantage of the frustrations or fears or anxieties of other larger, you know, wide scale um, groups. And at the heart of so much of these protests groups, uh, they're fueled by conspiracies, myths and disinformation that, uh, that threaten and, and, and share threats against public figures and politicians. And I thought it was interesting that 
on the same day that uh, Keir Stammer was um, heckled and called a traitor by protest groups in the UK last week, uh, there was also widespread calls for, for Justin Trudeau to be tried for treason in these kinds of online groups and for him being called a traitor as well. And you see these threats and you see the similar um, threatening and violent rhetoric running throughout these protest groups as well. So they have um, they have more in common than you realise and it's something that we definitely need to be aware of and uh, to monitor this risk going forward. Yeah. So that's very much watch this space. Listen, Kieran and Alan, thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you for listening to The Explainer and a big thank you to Alan and Kieran for joining us. This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by producers Nikki Ryan and Aoife Barry and my co-host Michelle Hennessy. We also probably have to thank DCUFM. Kieran, Alan, Nikki and myself are all alumni of Dublin City University's student radio station. If you want to support The Explainer, there are a few things you can do. Head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to become a one-off or monthly subscriber. You can also leave a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's a great way to help other people find us and to listen to our work. Thank you. Slán Pommel. <laughs>